This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The unsettling case of the poached Dudleya. You may or may not have been following this recent incident about Dudleyas, a group of lovely Western native succulents being poached, as in stolen, not steamed, wholesale from the California coast over the past year and shipped off to a frenzied market of succulent acquirers in Asia, specifically Korea. This whole incident brings up so many interesting and sometimes bothersome dilemmas in the world of plant lovers and gardeners. I thought it was worth exploring this a little more and with a slightly larger lens. Today, I'm joined by two esteemed plants people, Julie Nelson, forest botanist for the Shasta Trinity National Forest in Northern California, and Michael Kaufman, founder and editor of Backcountry Press, author of numerous books on California's flora and environments, and editor of the California Native Plant Society's Fremontia Journal. Julie and Michael recently worked together on the publication of The Wildflowers of the Trinity Alps. Julie and Michael join us today via Skype. Welcome, Julie and Michael. Thanks for having me. Yeah, glad to be here. So I want to start with a little bit of background on this poaching incident and as it has unfolded to the best of our understanding. Michael, on your blog recently, you posted a wonderful statement about the incident and your thoughts on it called the Dudleya Dilemma. Can you fill us in a little bit on what you know about the incident and your thoughts as expressed in that post? Sure. Um, The first time I actually heard about this was when I was working on an issue of Fremontia about the islands of California. And apparently this had been going on or has gone on in uh, some of the Mexican islands off the coast of Baja, California, over the last year and a half. What's interesting about that is those are highly endemic so the, the each island kind of has their own species, and it was uh, reported and there was some confiscation of those Dudleya, but then it, it cycled back around, and it was right in my backyard here in Humboldt County. And what I uh, heard of, about this was that first it, it had happened in Mendocino County, and the culprits were caught, and then about a week or two later, in my own backyard, like I said, uh, this, a friend of mine from California Fish and Wildlife called me and said, hey, have you heard about this happening right here uh, you know, up near Trinidad? And I hadn't, and he sent me some information about it, and it was just astounding to see the volume of plants that had been taken and that the, you know, they had caught these folks. And I guess the general story goes that it was – the case was broken by um, some postal workers because folks were showing up shipping large boxes and you know one postal worker talked to another and before they knew it they realized they had this case on their hands so they got in touch with fish and wildlife one thing led to another and thankfully these folks were caught at least some of these folks were caught and there was an incredible number of these plants that had been literally ripped off of the coastline popped into cardboard boxes. And some of the descriptions talk about a guy standing in line at the post office with dirt coming out of all of his boxes and someone saying, what do you, what do you have in there? 
the sheer number of of the plants taken was pretty astounding to me. Yeah, so the I actually participated in a replanting day, and we estimate we replanted 2,000 Dudleya. Wow. Um, and that was just in Humboldt County. And I think the number that I've heard from Mendocino is just about the same. The folks in Mendocino have, have replanted about a third of those, and they're waiting for the fall. They're going to keep them in greenhouses, keep them wet, waiting till the fall to actually replant the rest in Mendocino because I, I think their theory is it's a little bit drier down there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but just amazing. What I think is one of the biggest points to remember is that the reason that this all came to a head is because people were aware that something mm -hmm. in their small communities was going on. And these postal workers uh, were noticing the same people coming through shipping boxes for you know, $100, $200 shipping fees. And they really started to see, you know, this isn't right. Something's happening here. Yeah. I want to go to you, Julie, as a plant-loving person, an avid gardener yourself, and an expert on various groups of plants, I would love to have you tell us a little bit more about the Dudleya group. Dudleyas are, um, well, Dudleya is the genus name for a group of succulents that are in the the same family with sedums. It's called the stone crop family or Crassulaceae. Dudleyas ranges to the south. The northernmost ones get up to maybe Tehama County in California and then range down into Baja and onto the islands. And I think all told, and I'm guessing about 50 species, and well more than half of those are are rare species that are endemic to a small area. Their their relatives are the, the genus sedum that has a similar ecological situation in that they are also plants of rock outcrops. There's some on the coast, there's some inland, um, probably roughly same number of species. But sedums, although they slightly overlap Dudleyas in distribution, many in Northern California, and then they peter out and range up into Oregon. I think the, the northernmost one is you know, Mount Hood in the Cascade Range. So th these are two sister groups of succulent species, both of which have widespread members or relatively common members, and then a lot of rare members that, because they grow on rock outcrops, they're in an unusual situation when it comes to dispersal. That is, rock outcrops are not continuous, and therefore every little population is like an island. It's hard to get a sedum or a dudleya from one rock outcrop to another one and it may not happen all that often and it's not all that regular that even pollen makes it from one rock outcrop to another so they tend to develop these isolated distinct populations in place that turn into distinct species each group significantly different to itself so that the idea of, of crossing or transplanting or it, it becomes a more complicated issue. There's a really nice write-up in the widely available California Native Plants for the Garden written by Carol Bornstein and David Frost and Bart O'Brien. And they that came out um, quite a few years ago now. The species that they list, which I'm guessing they vetted for availability, since this is aimed at the home gardener group, uh, would be the chalk Dudleya. That's certainly the one I am most familiar with. Uh, Dudleya pulverulenta. The other one that is, I think, widely um, grown in gardens is the Catalina Island Dudleya, and the Britain Dudleya, I think, is another one. This brings up a, um, a point, which is for native plant gardeners, 
it's important. I know that it, it, it is really a big hump to get over for some who are intimidated by scientific names, but the use of common names can be so misleading that I would really recommend that if you're going to buy Dudleyas, that you look for a place that includes the scientific name on the label, because that's an indicator that it's a relatively reliable source. Yeah. If you only go by the common name, you you don't know what you're getting. Yeah. The resources that you mentioned earlier, Annie's Annuals and Botanic Garden Plant Sales, as well as Calflora, I think in Santa Rosa, also carries a few of them. But this opens up a whole different layer of conversation on what we think about when we are um, loving, quote unquote, a plant and deciding whether or not to include it in our gardens and in our lives. And there are several layers to this that are complicated but worth talking about, I think. Um, Before we get to that, I want to continue with this idea of the poaching incident. When Michael says that there were replanting parties that replanted up to 2,000 plants, your head then has to do a little calculation of how many were already shipped, right? How how many were, were sent off? And if this happened with the Dudleyas, then you think of our other rare plants that collectors get this sort of taste for. It, it brings up bigger, bigger issues. Talk to me a little bit, Julie, um, because you and I have talked about this before and you wrote me a couple of notes about this, about other plants that might have fallen prey to this kind of appetite in our in our plant world i became aware of of other plants and and plant collecting history when i worked at a botanic garden in the 80s and and partly because the director of the botanic garden was a an englishman who had trained at wisley and and one of the 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 major collections of this botanic garden was uh Alpine plants, and and another one was lilium species, and um, another one was rare plants of the Pacific Northwest, and and I was educated. I had been dimly aware, just because of what I had learned about some of the early collectors in the Pacific Northwest and California, such as David Douglas, of course, is one of the um, the classics, and Thomas Nuttall, and some of the other uh, collectors whose names show up in the the species names of of our native plants, um, such as you know dogwood is Cornus natalii, named after Thomas Nuttall. A lot of those people were here to collect, to ship things back to England. And their part of the expedition's cost was financed by people of wealth in England who wanted plants for their estates. And so everything from giant sequoias and coast redwoods to wildflowers and flowering shrubs and succulents a lot of this stuff went back to England, and so now uh, it's it's funny to me, in a way, that many of the cultivars that are available for our native plants, that is, versions of our native plants that have been selected for a particular uh, color or growth habit, For um, there are several cultivars, for instance, of 
our native um, red flowering current, Ribes sanguinium. I think there's one called King George um, that were were selected in England and then entered the the nursery trade. You know, trickled back across the pond and are available here in the states. But the the English have had a great time. Have you ever been to a you know orchard garden supply and looked at um, the selection of California poppy colors in mm-hmm. the seed packets. Mm-hmm. Those all came from California poppies that were collected, shipped to England, and they had a great time with them. And now you can get California poppy seed in, you know, ivory and pastel colors and um, mixtures and individual yellow and orange ones and dwarf ones and big ones. And it's just the the history of collecting western and not just western obviously but everywhere you know the the collectors had a heyday in asia too the history of collecting goes back quite a ways and both common plants and rare plants and i i would like to make a distinction between what i think of as people who collect plants for to grow them and people that just like native plant gardening and don't really care if if it's a rare plant or or special or restricted in some way, but just are designing a landscape that, you know, is colorful and maybe drought tolerant or at least is adapted to local growing conditions. So I, there's a scale there. There's a continuum of collectors on the one end. And I would guess that the Dudleyas mostly went to collectors who probably putting these in pots and displaying them with some reverence and to show their their friends that they had a very special thing. To me that, you know, that is really no different than somebody who collects original artwork that's of high value or um, or unusual stamps or coins or it's not it's not necessarily an acknowledgement of of a, a living biological entity or an interest in conservation. It's just an interest in the aesthetics and the, um, the rarity and specialness of it, mm-hmm. I would say. So, you know, to me, ripping things out of a hillside for that motivation um, of humans that humans have, some humans have, to you know, collect and hoard special things, which I think kind of feeds into our our desire to be special. Yeah. And it's, if it's a part of the human impulse to garden, it's an ugly part. And it is, um, it is about acquisitiveness rather than yeah. true gardening or plant appreciation. And it opens up a discussion about collecting at all and how it's done and by whom and uh, with what motivation. And of course, our botanic gardens, our, our horticultural world period is based on a long history of collecting and sharing and swapping um, and learning from, from all of those activities. And in this day and age, it brings up the ethics of this. You, you hear about foraging and wild crafting and poaching. Um, and what... I would love to hear both of your thoughts as both communicators and public voices, as well as home gardeners and personal plant lovers yourselves. What are the ethics you hold yourself to on this front? Let's start with you, Michael. Sure. 
Um, you know, I've I've struggled with this for a long time um, for various reasons, and I think it first came to me when I published my first book about uh, conifer country. And, and really, what conifer country was is a conifer hunting book, right? It's a it's me uh, teaching about the ecology of the Klamath Mountains, but also saying, look, here's where you can go and see these amazing trees. And there's an impact there when you invite people into the wild, right? There's an impact on the environment if people are not using leave no trace ethics. But there's also a part of it where in you want people to, to appreciate these things, right? And, and Dudleya are charismatic. Like they are just spectacular spectacular plants and they're well adapted to the california floristic province and because of that they have this ability to sustain long periods of drought and they have the ability to be shipped across the country without being damaged so there's a real balance there between you know encouraging people to love something to learn about it to get out and enjoy it and then also taking it to the next level where you think okay well maybe i'd like to take this home to my house and have a little piece of nature in my house or in my garden. And um, so there's that balance, right? We need, we really need to understand how we can encourage a love of wild things like Dudleya or conifers, but then also how we can, with you know increased populations, teach ways to leave things where they are and watch for people who aren't appreciating things uh, with a leave no trace ethic. It really what it comes down to me, for me, is to encourage people to love things. And then like Julie said, to encourage people to purchase these plants from certified nurseries or to grow them themselves, right? Maybe you do get a permit to collect seeds on the national forest so that you can grow it. But the problem became with these Dudleya was that folks were rappelling down cliffs to find the oldest and biggest mm. specimens that they could because these are the ones that could, could uh, you know, price tag could be 200, 300 bucks. And we saw this on Etsy and, and a few other sites where people, you could see this really old growth, multiple stemmed, beautiful Dudleya uh, with the $250 price tag. And that those things are hard to grow. You know, you can't, that's, I, I have no idea, but I'd imagine it's at least a 10 year old plant. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, it's a real uh, conundrum, I think, in this day and age. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, I'm joined by plants people Julie Nelson, a field botanist with the Forest Service, and Michael Kaufman of Backcountry Press and the California Native Plant Society. We're exploring some of the issues brought up by a recent large-scale poaching of rare endemic Dudleyas for an overseas market. We've talked about the characteristics of Dudleya as a genus and some history of plant hunting and collecting. We'll be back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer, and it's really summer now. We've been through our first triple-digit multi-day heat wave here where I garden, and we're through both the glow of the summer solstice and the heated holiday that is the 4th of July. Nothing is ever quite as simple as it seems, is it? Not if you really look at it from more than just one angle. Everything can be viewed on multiple dimensions, and gardening is no different. When I think of the human impulse to garden, I think good things. I think of flowers and healthy soils and supporting pollinators and sharing food with friends. 
But there are darker sides to gardening, and we all know this too. Today's episode gets into some esoteric territory, and to be honest, I can see where some of you might have tuned out already, thinking, this is about some weird event in California. What does this have to do with me? I don't even know what a Dudleya is. But I would argue, in this almost ecology class of a conversation with Julie and Michael, we are asked to think about some fascinating topics, topics we should all interrogate ourselves about, our ethics, our standards, our awareness, and a simple question that's at the very essential heart of gardening for me. How do I love wild nature from all parts of the globe and native plants and most respectfully and knowledgeably include those plants and this love into my home garden? If we're going to encourage and be encouraged to include native plants in our gardens and landscapes, how do we work to ensure this effort doesn't diminish the very thing we're trying to support? nature herself. Hmm. Food for summer thought, I think. Now back to the conversation with Julie and Michael. Honestly, two of the smartest people I know. Well, I like what you've said, Michael, and I would agree with with your points wholeheartedly. Um, my, my personal experience in native plant gardening, what I my greatest pleasures, I would say, have been in introducing local wildflowers that didn't grow on my exact piece of property but weren't too far away and um, collecting seeds and scattering them in places where it looked like the habitat was was similar. And, and I had several spectacular successes over the years it took a, a while, but they eventually became very uh, dramatic plantings. One was a thing called coyote thistle, a, a purple one, um, an eryngium that I threw into a, a little vernal pool that was unremarkable in terms of its flora, but it flooded every year. And so I threw some eryngium seed in there, and by golly, it took and became a beautiful stand. And then the drainage out of the vernal pool down to the lower part of the property became inhabited um, by the eryngium as well. Had a similar experience with um, meadow foam, a local limnanthes alba, that I brought some seed in and it just took over all the wet spots and produced a spectacular display. A checker mallow, a sedalsia, and a blue-eyed grass, a cicerinchium that did exceptionally well. Now, I will say that for every success I had, I probably had five or six absolute failures. Like, I cannot, for the life of me, figure out why I can't grow a lupin from seed to save my life. I don't get it. I mean, how hard can it be? But lupins hate me. I, that's, that's the only thing I can figure. So my, my personal ethics are built around grow what loves you um, or um, if, if, if you plant something and it thrives, do more of that. And if you plant something and, and, it, and it dies, maybe try one more time and then just gracefully let it go. You know, I, I feel bad continually introducing new material of, of native plants only to watch it die. And at a certain point, one has to say that this is not 
this is not ethical to bring these things to the graveyard of my, <laughs> of my property. <laughs> I like to buy things from the local Native Plant Society chapter and the local Arboretum. You know, there are things that I lust after that I can't get from them, and sometimes I do without them. Other times, a really great source of plants that's hard for me as a kind of reserved, introverted person. I am pretty diligent about scouting my city for nice native plant gardens or places where people are growing beautiful examples of native plants. And occasionally, I can summon up the courage to go knock on the door and say, you have a a beautiful garden, and would you consider sharing some of your starts with me? Because typically, if a native plant in a garden is doing really well, it will produce seedlings or it will produce offsets or it will at least produce seeds. Mm -hmm. And most gardeners are happy to share those. And with the bonus of they can actually give you advice on how to grow the things. And one of the advantages to that is if you get those from somebody who's growing it in your town, you can be pretty sure that it's reasonably adapted to conditions in your town. Mm -hmm. And also you're not collecting it from the wild and usually it's free. Yeah, yeah. And there are actual laws about this, not just personal ethics, but legalities about, uh, about collecting seed or plant life from the wild. Run us through the basics on the legalities of that. Well, there are a number of, of, of laws. Some of them are federal laws. Some of them are California state laws. And most of them are aimed at rare plants. But there is this great statute, which is was really surprising to me. It's a state in the state penal code. The these are uh, these laws are listed um, on the the California Department of Fish and Wildlife website. The the list of native plant protection laws, and of course there's a Federal Endangered Species Act. There's a California Endangered Species Act. There's a California Native Plant Protection Act. There's one that is specifically geared toward restriction of collection of desert plants, which are very attractive for landscaping in some areas, you know, things like um, yuccas and agaves and cacti and ocotillo and the like. Um, and then there's this statute that that basically says whatever you collect, whatever you want to collect, even if it's not rare, you need to get the landowner's permission, whether that's a federal agency, a state agency, a private landowner, you know, a county or a local jurisdiction, and you need to get that permission in writing. And if it's if you don't get that permission, you are subject to um, a misdemeanor penalty, which can be up to $500 or I think six months in jail. You know, it's hard to imagine that that's enforced regularly unless there is a disgruntled landowner who actually knows who the perpetrator is and wants to press charges. But it does bring up a basic ethical guideline, which is anytime you collect anything, you need to get the permission of the person who owns the the land. Yeah. Um, And some, some agencies have formal permits 
and others don't. And of course, um, some landowners are more concerned about the liability of having people trespassing on their land and maybe hurting themselves and other people could care less. But it's basic common courtesy to, to ask for permission to collect even a common thing. And of course, you, you want to collect things that are that are plentiful rather than take the last the last thing that's present in an acre. Anyway, that statute, um, the language of that is linked to the California Department of Fish and Wildlife website. It's very interesting. I think most people just aren't aware of it. And it, it includes not just um, collecting, but it's illegal to mutilate or deface or damage or generally harm native plants. You know, you, you mentioned in our communication prior to this conversation that this is certainly not the first plant to, you know, or plant group. And of course, there's been a, a huge succulent craze in our country and around the world for probably the last 10, 12 years, hard to say. But there are other other groups as well. The um, You mentioned specifically the Darlingtonias and carnivorous plants, the sedums, as well as the Dudleyas, the Lewisias, um, orchids, and then, of course, all of the bulbs. So... Nobody is safe if one of these plants happens to find its way into the fashion world of plants and horticulture. What, beyond doing our own due diligence, for instance, if you see a plant for $250 on Etsy, you might consider the provenance of that plant and uh, consider it to be dubious at best. And the uh, the due diligence in terms of researching where you are buying your plants from. I loved your suggestions, Julie, of reaching out to the people around you um, in your communities, your native plant societies and chapters and plant groups. There, there are a couple of other sort of smaller nuances to this conversation, one of which is when you are growing a native plant in your home garden, the issue of contamination to other similar native plants in your area. Talk to me about this complication. Well, I wonder if Michael has some insight into this conversation in regard to conifers. Mm -hmm. Or maybe Arctostaphylos, maybe Manzanitas. Yeah. You know, I'm not an expert on cultivation, but I have become a little bit more impassioned, uh, especially with certain conifers like the Port Orford cedar. And that has uh, a huge number of cultivars out there. And and it's just a species that lends itself to that because it seems to, when you, when you say harvest seeds or, or a plant from the wild and you take it to a new environment, it seems to take on new characteristics. So let's say that uh, a cultivar of a Port Orford cedar, which is endemic and in in some ways threatened by uh, root rotting disease uh, in the wild and and I'd imagine in gardens. But if you take that and uh, reintroduce it into an area where uh, it wasn't native to begin with, maybe a different population site, so to speak, there can be some interesting things that will could happen to that native population. But conifers are different because in a lot of ways, conifers are these relics that have been in these isolated populations for a long time. So maybe that new genetics is could potentially be good, but then when you're talking about introduced pathogens, that is not a good thing. So you know we've had these issues with um, 
transports of certain rhododendrons from gardens, uh, garden centers it back into wilder environments, and mm. then the introduction of um, Phytophthora uh, into um, certain watersheds that this was never seen before. So, you know, the, the mixing of genetics is a tricky thing. And then it are you potentially uh, playing with evolution with a Dudleya or a sedum if you introduce it to an area where it's never been or you introduce that pollen into a place where there is a speciation event going on? And in a lot of ways, we are playing God, so to speak, when we move things around. And it is our responsibility I think as uh, ecologists and, and lovers of the of the native world to think about how we do move things from place to place. Gardeners love new hybrids that might pop up from moving things and, and crossing pollen from one species of manzanita to another and the color of the leaves that might emerge when those things happen. So it's tricky. You know, this is something that I've really struggled with the last couple of months thinking about this because I'm a citizen scientist. I love to go out. I love to document things on Calflora, which is a database for native plants. I love to use iNaturalist and and iNaturalist is another forum where you can take a picture of a plant, an animal, whatever it might be, and then you upload it and say, look what I found in this place. But what I'm starting to realize is that for some of these rare plants and unusual plants, we need to be a little bit more discerning when we're popping this data onto the World mm. Wide Web because it can lead to folks finding a place that they might not have otherwise found because of an observation that they can just easily find on their phone on the way to a trailhead. Mm. So. You know, there's ways to obs obscure geoprivacy settings on some of these databases, and then that will allow, I hope, in some ways, the wild to continue to remain wild. And I know I drifted a little bit there. Um, so, Julie, if you have anything else to add about uh, the genetics and moving things around, um, please do. Oh, I wanted to tag on to the – I have one – really only one very sad – story about having inadvertently led an unethical person to a, a place where there was a, um, a plant that was vulnerable. And that was, I, uh, many years ago, I, I took some people on a field trip up into the area of the Eastern Klamath Ranges around Castle Crags and then um, into the eddies. And one of the places we stopped was a roadside seep that had wild azaleas and darlingtonia and at the perched at the top of the road cut there was this beautiful clump of california lady slipper orchid mm -hmm. um cypripedium californicum and i had driven by that spot for years and stopped and admired it every time and the next time i went back it was gone maybe it died there was no remnant of it and uh, this the sad thing to me apart from the fact that someone would do that is that Orchids are almost entirely dependent on these mycorrhizal fungi and often a, a host plant such as a, a conifer or a, a shrub, and they just they don't transplant well. So if you try to transplant a wild orchid, you've just killed it. Mm -hmm. So I still feel bad about that. You know, I, I um, whenever I see a California lady slipper, I. I do a little prayer and say I'm sorry. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. If you've been gardening for any length of time, you will know the sensation of plant lust, and it's a powerful sensation. 
You see a plant, you fall in love, you must have it. But what if this plant we want is rare or endangered? What if we find a source for the plant, but we're not sure of its origins? Was it legally propagated or illegally and unethically collected? What do we do with some of these sticky issues? In the wake of a wide-scale poaching of rare and endemic Dudleya, a succulent plant genus that grows throughout California and much of the American Southwest, today I am joined by two native plants people, Julie Nelson, a Forest Service botanist, and Michael Kaufman of Backcountry Press and the California Native Plant Society to explore some of the issues inherent in this situation. We'll be right back after a break to hear more. Stay with us. It's Jennifer. I've been camping a couple of times already this summer, out on the trail, botanizing and wandering with John and camera and notebook and happy, happy heart. So this concept of the leave no trace ethic is front of mind for me just now. I know what it looks like to me. What does it look like to you? And how do we encourage all of us gardeners and nature lovers to adopt such an ethic and stick to it without judgment and policing of an overreaching way? Some people I know feel really strongly about the need for fewer laws, less regulation. The wild areas and public lands are for us as the human species to use. Sigh. Without wanting to be judgy, I look at my own life and garden and I'm left to wonder, just where has this mindset gotten us? And how do we do whatever we can to rectify the damage done because we understand and we truly want to not because we're being told we have to. What does the leave no trace and living within rather than outside of our plant communities look like to you? I'm thinking on this. I'll keep you posted. In many ways, it looks just like this conversation with Julie and Michael. It's inquiring, it's thoughtful, it's reflective, and it's very complicated because we're all in this together. If you don't already subscribe to the A View From Here monthly newsletter, sign up while you're at the website looking at today's episode notes. It's a great way for me to stay in touch with you. You can also always leave a comment on the episode post on Instagram or Facebook. I'm on Instagram daily and Facebook weekly. Join me there and say hi. I'd love to connect and share your views too. Okay, now back to Julie and Michael and the case of the poached Dudleyas. One biological thing that people may not think about is that, as we talked about earlier, the sedums, they grow in isolated patches and their, their pollinators don't always have the capacity to go far enough to go from one patch to another. Many plants are pollinated by insects of various um, home ranges, that is, you know, how far they can fly to gather pollen. And then there are things like conifers and grasses that are wind pollinated and their pollen can can go a tremendous long, long distance. And it's, it's nearly impossible with a wind pollinated plant to prevent its pollen from going 
out into the surrounding countryside where there may be something related to it that its pollen could then land on a, a receptive stigma. With things that are insect pollinated, they, you know, if, you grow in an, if, if you're growing something in, in the middle of a city, there's less of an issue about genetic pollination than if, you're, if you live in a suburb near the edge of town or if you live in a relatively rural area where your plants are readily available as part of the larger pollen pool with the neighboring native plants of the of the same species and you know again the, the classic example is california poppy which at this point has been so moved around and spread around that that it's it's very very difficult to tell which poppy populations are quote unquote native and which ones are naturalized and and the the dilemma is in a wide ranging native species if you bring in a poppy for instance that is native to Shasta County from a place where it may get say 40 inches of rain a year and you throw it out in your garden in Southern California in a place that maybe gets 10 inches of rain a year. You know, if you water it, it might, might grow fine the first year if they get a rain event. But if it grows up and produces a lot of pollen, that pollen gets into the neighboring native California poppies, and then your poppies die because they're not particularly well adapted. But in the meantime, your poppies have polluted the nearby poppies, which now have genes that are adapted to a wetter place to the north. And so the whole the whole surrounding landscape of poppies then is becoming less adapted to its native home. Mm-hmm. So that that's the basic argument. Now, um, I can see that there are cases where that is a, a real legitimate concern. I think, in, in my view, that is less of a concern to me in terms of danger to native plant populations and species than is wholesale loss of habitat or swamping by invasive species. I think, mm-hmm. I think genetic pollution is, it's kind of up for grabs because as, as the climate changes, we really don't know what genotypes are going to be adapted and which are not. And so there is talk even in the, the conservation community about something called assisted migration where mm-hmm. you take populations of, of, of plants that are not local at the moment, but it looks like they may be pre-adapted to the conditions that are coming or are already presenting themselves, even though the plants that are, especially trees, long-lived species, the things that grow here now germinated during an earlier time when the climate may have been different. And so the idea of of pre-adaptation or assisted migration essentially makes use of that principle of taking something that's not adapted and moving it to a place where you think it might be adapted in the future um, in hopes that the species will not become extirpated locally. But it's all experimental. And so I don't know what to say about that. Uh, it, other than I think th- I think it's nuanced. I think it depends on the species. It depends on the pollination 
ecology of the species. It depends on where you're growing the plant and how close you are to other members, native members of the same species. And so it, it's kind of a case-by-case basis. But I will say, um, as a general rule, that any wildflower packet of seed that you buy should never be thrown out on a piece of public land. Mm-hmm. Those are garden plants. And even then you should think twice about it because you don't know where those things came from. Yeah. Yeah, the, the assisted migration is such a, uh, that is a controversial and fascinating topic that will certainly be unfolding in, in the coming years, no doubt, and uh, brings up a lot of complexity with it and is a, you know, is a, is a gamble on a variety of levels. But certainly the people shipping Dudleyas from the west coast of California to Korea were not engaged in assisted migration. They were, uh, they were doing things that we don't want done in this world. And so that brings me around to a final question for both of you, which is what are your recommendations to those of us who are you know, out in the world, in our gardens, on the trail, and we see something funny happening? Even, I guess, if we're in the post office and we see something, what do we do? What's, what is your advice to us? Yeah, I'll jump in here real quick. I think this is the, the, the key question that I have struggled with, and I really do think that it's awareness. I think we need to have radio programs that share that this is happening. We need to have, uh, you know, we've developed a flyer that is now being posted from Del Norte, Humboldt County South, all the way into Santa Barbara, Los Angeles counties, where this deadly Aferinosa grows, so that it's at the trailhead and people can see, okay, this is a charismatic native plant, and if something suspicious, like somebody with a backpack full of them is scaling a cliff, then we can we should call the Department of Fish and Wildlife and we should report it. Mm-hmm. And there was another recent report, I think it was Monterey County, just two weeks ago. And that's exactly what happened. Somebody saw this when they were pulled over on the side of the road. They took a picture and uh, one thing led to another and Fish and Wildlife got involved. So I just, I really think the public education along with, again, I'll reiterate, just the leave no trace ethics. You know, we just, there's, we need to care for a place but not bring it home with us. Yeah. Well said. I think it's helpful for the public to know, to have an understanding of who owns or manages the land that they're recreating on, whether it's a, Mm. a national forest or a national park or a Bureau of Land Management or, um, you know, a, a, a state or county park or the like, because if if something like that happens on a, a national forest, I know that the that national forest would very much like to be informed. I think it's in a, a general rule, it's it's always a good idea to call California Department of Fish and Wildlife because they are the essentially the 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 trustee agency for the state of California for natural resources. So it's never a bad idea to call them. Yeah. I know that in some spheres, people will refer to growing native rare plants at home as a form of conservation. What do you say to this? I would say 
that growing rare plants at home, if, if they've been propagated and not collected, can be an educational tool, but anyone who's ever grown a garden and then moved away and come back to see it a couple years later will know that a garden population is doomed to die. So it's not a long-term conservation measure. There is, in conservation circles, an ongoing conversation about the value, the relative value of in situ conservation, which the, which is the principle that you you conserve things in their natural habitat, and ex situ cons- conservation, which is growing things in botanic gardens, seed banking, that. I think the conversation has evolved over the years after an initial legitimate fear, I think, that any emphasis on ex situ conservation, that is non-native habitat conservation, would lead people to abandon the effort to conserve things in their natural habitat. I think there is a, an important role for both to play. But that work, that ex situ conservation in a garden in an institution only works in a place where there is an institutional commitment and funding to where that is going to last for at least multiple human lifetimes um, and is not dependent on an individual gardener and an individual private piece of property. Yeah, that's good. I, I, you know, the one interesting thing though is like the Lassix Loop and North Coast CNPS is now breeding that in our in our greenhouses because it gets not happening in the wild anymore. I think that is a good point. And another one came up in my mind, which is many gardeners know the story of ginkgo, which mm-hmm. was extinct in the wild and it was preserved in, in a, a garden setting in a very small area in a remote part of China. And so there are instances where essentially nearly extinct plants have been brought back from the dead or saved from extinction by cultivation. But as a general practice, I would say a home garden is a dead end for a rare plant. I, I wanted to, to add something that came to me recently. I was up in, in Portland, I don't know, a month or two ago and went to this great event in the, you know, this exhibition hall called, called Hortlandia, mm. which had probably... I don't know, 50 or 60 nurseries of everything from succulents to bulbs to um, vine maples to, you know, English perennials to whatever. But um, there were a couple of really fabulous succulent nurseries, and none of them had any rare plants on display. But I was impressed with the – I actually bought a a little planter for my son. Both of my kids are crazy about succulents. I guess every lots of people are, but but I bought this little planter full of succulents, and I was so impressed with the incredible range of of sedums and sempervivums that were available in all different colors, shapes, growth forms, um, for for cheap. I mean, they're really inexpensive, super easy to propagate. And it got me to thinking, why do we have to have rare things when there are all these wonderful, easy to propagate, cheap, um, guilt-free succulents that we can get so easily? Why do we have to go collect stuff 
from a rock crevice in the wild. I mean, what is that? What does that say about us? Thank you both for being guests on the program today. I really appreciate the conversation and your personal and professional insights. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. If anyone ever told you gardening was easy or simple or superficial, they were wrong. And it's not. It's complex and layered and dimensional in ways that few of us fully grasp in our gardening lifetimes, which is some large part of the draw, isn't it? It makes us think. With luck, it makes us think a lot from a perspective far beyond our own immediate pleasure or gratification. Because as these things go on the quantum level, gardening has the potential power to change everything, for the better or the worse. Right here in the middle of the 4th of July holidays, as we head out for summer garden visits, hikes, bikes, camps, and backpacks, these ideas are all worth thinking about. Julie Nelson is a forest botanist for the Shasta Trinity National Forest in Northern California, and Michael Kaufman is the founder and editor of Backcountry Press. He's also author of numerous books on California's flora and environments, and he serves as the editor of the California Native Plant Society's Fremontia Journal. Julie and Michael recently worked together on the publication of The Wildflowers of the Trinity Alps. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways that people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible by you. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. To subscribe to the Cultivating Place podcast, as well as to read more about and see many photos of Dudleyas, poaching, and the Leave No Trace ethics, head over to cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.